0: Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are personal finance writer Kate Beerley and special guests David Reid, co manager of BlackRock Emerging Europe Investment Trust, Adrian Lowcock, head of investing at AXA Self Investor, and Jason Whitcomb, certified financial planner and director at Evolve. Today we're discussing whether you should move your portfolio into safer assets in the run up to retirement. Traditionally, investors used to move their pension savings into safer assets as retirement approached to preserve any gains with the purchase of an annuity in mind. But in April, the retirement landscape was radically changed when new rules came into force, allowing savers much more freedom on what they do with their retirement pots. Adrian, under what circumstances would it still be appropriate to de risk your pension pot in the run up to retirement?
1: I think for a lot of people, um, you're still going to have to do some sort of de-risking, no matter who you are, unless you've got a, a substantial sum of money and you're well ahead of your objectives for retirement. But if you're close to your objectives or perhaps a little bit behind your objectives and you're getting to that point of retirement, you're going to need to protect what capital you've got. Um, so it's basically about how much money and how far you are closer, closer to your objectives to actually determine how much risk you should be taking on. So de-risking is quite essential getting closer to retirement but with the sort of flexibility now you need to sort of make sure you combine some lower level of risk with outlooks to have some flexibility in investments and and
2: savings.
0: Jason uh, what's your position on this?
2: Yeah I think it's become very difficult because in the past when there was this obligation to buy an annuity you could plan towards that and and, you know at the end of the day you had to buy an annuity at 75 historically Um, but now people have got so many different objectives with their retirement pots, their pension pots, because of this flexibility. So partly it's about producing an income in retirement, but then there's also the ability to pass money on to uh, to kids and grandkids in a tax efficient way. And it's trying to weigh up all of those objectives to then do that first and then look back at how, you know, how your investments need to be spread to meet with those objectives and, I think it's becoming increasingly difficult to try to get a strategy that allows you to do all of those things at the same time.
0: What sort of strategies could you
2: pursue though? We try to take quite a simplistic approach to investment, take a sort of a whiskey and water type approach. So traditionally equities as the the whiskey, water it down with something low risk. So short dated bonds would be uh, an area that we use, but others will take a different approach. Um, But... It sort of depends on when you're going to need the money. So so one, take an example. Annuities seem to have got a bad name for themselves. But as part of someone's retirement income strategy, they might take the view that they take a proportion of their pension fund out, buy an annuity with that. And at least they know where they where they stand with a bit of their money. And then with the balance, maybe they can afford to take a bit more investment risk. Because at least there's a sort of a bedrock of retirement income, add the state pension to that as well, that at least covers the bills. So, you know, a bit of annuity purchase, maybe. um, And then, you know, to to make things like all all this flexibility around drawdown work, you need to be taking a reasonable amount of risk. Otherwise, you're not likely to get the same sort of income you could have got through an annuity.
0: (laughs) Adrian, what kind of strategy would you pursue
1: I think I, I like to look at this uh, uh, re- retirement planning in, in sort of a, a bucket approach so basically you 've got four risks in retirement you have uh, uh, longevity how long are you going to live in retirement? None of us really know, but we tend to underestimate how long we 're going to live. Uh, you have inflation risk, so money gets eroded by uh, inflation you have volatility of investments and you have flexibility um not Any single thing or asset will address all four of those issues. So you need a bucket, uh, different buckets to address the different risks. So I think having Uh, as Jason said, a a small amount in an annuity, that can sort of give you that uh, certainty. It can give you uh, a sum of money that will exist no matter how long you live, uh, and it pays for the necessities in life, the the food and the uh, um, heating bills. Uh, And then you can have other other pots of money, so perhaps a bit of cash that will sort of give you your daily income, your annual income, that that effectively means that you don't have um, to worry about the volatility of stock markets. Um, And then the inflation and flexibility, that. That can be addressed by various types of investments and that could be your higher risk area. Now depending on your attitude to risk depends on what sort of how much you have in each bucket if you like and what you may have in the in the individual buckets as well. So you may be a very cautious person, you may have a little bit less in, in higher risk equities in the in the final bucket uh, and, a, and a more adventurous person may have more in that overall area and, and less in cash. Um, but by doing that you have a, a sort of framework from which to build your retirement.
0: Um, you're talking about the framework, drilling down to the investments, what kind of investments would you use uh, to fill out this framework?
1: Yeah, so the first one, annuities, I mean, that's just a simple product that you would buy, get a good rate, you might consider an inflation-adjusted one so that you can protect against capital. The cash bucket, that's just the effect of basically a cash savings, get a good good cash account and then with investments you're really looking I think in this in this climate bonds they don't particularly offer attractive yields certainly wouldn't look at government debt at the moment uh, but you can get a reasonable yield on some bonds you can particularly use products that might be quite useful that, that could be quite strategic in this in this climate and then it's you know I think it's going to still be largely equities in this climate get a diversified portfolio so get UK equity income global income but also perhaps something like a diversified real assets fund that gives access to infrastructure and products like that, so that you get a, a broad range of income. And then within that, you you may need, still want to have some growth because you want that, that pot of money to grow. And ideally, you can then take a natural income from it as opposed to drawing down on the capital, which would sort of impact on your longevity question. Uh, so it's getting a broad range of assets, but equities look like the sort of prime place to be at the moment because you can grow that income still.
0: Jason, would you focus on equities or how would you asset allocate
2: for us it comes back to this sort of whiskey and water approach a very broad uh, diversified portfolio of equity funds uk and overseas a bit of a tilt towards small companies and value companies and emerging markets which you would hope in the long run to get a sort of an extra premium for investing in those but we, we take the view that the the lower risk bit has to be in short dated bonds for us, and it's a difficult market. You know, they're, they're not paying much in the way of yield. But f- from our perspective, what else do you do to to diversify away from equities? You know, our hope would be that if economic conditions go against bonds, hopefully those economic conditions will will favour equities in the long run, and it's sort of a you know a, a balanced approach. Um, but you know, my my real concern is. That there are a lot of people out there with their pension pot at the point of retirement who, who really don't have enough money, um, and and there's this issue of capacity for loss. You know, people, a lot of people can't afford to lose much money with their pensions, and you know, there's there is a danger that people say, "Well, I don't like the story about bonds at the moment," and end up having a bit too much in equities. Suddenly, we have a a stock market crash that they can never recover from because they're drawing an income as well. So. I think there's an element of overconfidence that people have in you know how long this money is going to last, and for some people, however unattractive annuities annuity rates might look, uh, at least it gives you a guarantee for some part of your retirement income.
0: Adrian, have any traps that you would highlight?
1: I think, uh, as Jason mentioned, the, the long- longevity issue is significant uh, and we really should prepare to live longer than we perhaps expect. But I, I think the biggest trap uh, is, is going to be inflation. Uh, we don't have it particularly at the moment. It's very low, almost non-existent. But who's to say that won't return in five years or, uh, and what it will be like in 20 or 30 years' time? And if you're retiring at 65 at the moment, you know, life expectancies are going out. It's not unrealistic to expect to live 20 or 30 years in retirement during which time inflation can easily halve the value of money. 3% inflation will halve the value of money in about 23 years. Uh, That is significant, so that's the big trap to avoid.
0: OK. We count a number of emerging markets funds among our IC top 100 funds, and these include BlackRock Emerging Europe. In this region, Russia in particular has hit the headlines over the past 18 months following its annexation of Crimea. David, countries including the UK have imposed sanctions on Russia, Does this affect your existing investments? Will you have to sell any? And will it adversely affect your choice of potential investments going forward? Thank
3: you for the question. So uh, sanctions have been a very significant issue for Russia uh, over the past year. But I think what made them particularly painful for the country was the combination of sanctions and falling oil prices. Uh, those two factors, whether it was oil tax receipts or external borrowing, were the two main sources of um, foreign currency financing for the country. And so they've been in a very tight spot liquidity-wise. And that intensified into uh, December in in particular. Uh, and there was one particular day, in fact, where the ruble moved 30% intraday. Now, our positioning uh, going into the second half of last year was actually very underweight Russia. Uh, we realized after the very unfortunate uh, uh, MH17 plane uh, disaster, um, that sanctions were a realistic possibility. Uh, and of course, the oil price ended up compounding those. So in terms, of, uh, in terms of relative performance, it was something we were actually well prepared for. But when we saw that capitulation of in December, we actually started to increase our positions uh, and we're now in a position where we're overweight Russia. Uh, We think there's a massive amount of value there in the market I think what people often forget is that uh, a lot of the companies in Russia despite the economic uh, situation are actually doing reasonably well. A good example would be the oil companies which are the largest part of the uh, the index Yes, the oil price has fallen but we shouldn't forget that their costs are in rubles and uh, the ruble has depreciated even more than the oil price fell. Uh, And so that means their profitability is still very strong. They are internationally exceptionally competitive. And these companies are are trading on uh, price to earnings ratios of just five times and quite comfortably paying out sustainable 7% dividend yields. So it's a good opportunity for the long term investor. And one of the nice things about the investment trust structure is that we can look through uh, periods of turbulence like this, take our opportunities and maximise returns over the long term.
4: Mm, And in fact, your your top stock is now bank, isn't it? Which this is Russian stock. And has that been the one that you've been adding to particularly and what and why that one?
3: So spare banks a very interesting case. It, it's the stock which is is typically the, the bellwether stock for sentiment on the uh, on the ruble. Uh, and the ruble is a very oil-linked currency. And so so when the ruble was selling off in, in the fourth quarter of last year, uh, spare bank shares were, were beaten down to, to exceptionally cheap levels. This is one of the most profitable banks in the world. Uh, it's not showing it at the moment because uh, Russia is, is going through a difficult time economically speaking, and some of the debt that they have outstanding is, is uh, uh, not performing. But the, the underlying profitability is such that even despite this, they're still likely to make a profit this year. And this is in, in a recessionary year. Whereas normally, you'd be expecting them to generate a return on equity of north of 15%. And that's actually a very, very high rate, particularly in, in a world that's starved for yield.
4: So what, what's your plan with that stock? Are you, are you holding it at the same level? Or do you think you'll be increasing the allocation? reducing it?
3: Well, you know, I think like a lot of Russian... Uh, uh, companies that we hold. Uh, we we are intending to to hold them for the long term. They have certain characteristics that we think are very advantageous. I think it's probably worth remarking on, on the sort of um, change of mandate or investment strategy that we had with the trust uh, about 18 months ago, where we moved the trust to a focused and unconstrained strategy. So uh, uh, we have a maximum number of holdings, up to 30 holdings. So we're really picking the stocks that we think have the best uh, value opportunity, uh, have the best potential uh, cash flow generation going forward. And uh, uh, SpareBank is one of those stocks.
4: And that, that was quite a reduction, wasn't it, on the number of stocks you were holding before?
3: Yes, it was. It, you know, we, we inherited this uh, trust from the previous manager back in 2009. We ran it fairly um, successfully from that period up until uh, the continuation vote. But the board at that uh, uh, stage essentially came to us and said, if you were going back and and with a blank piece of paper uh, to to, to make the right investment strategy uh, for the region, uh, how would you do it? And and this uh, this was the main Uh, change that we made. A good example of of what it means in practice, if you look at the emerging European benchmark, it's very dominated by uh, uh, the three traditional sectors, if you like, of energy, financials and materials. Those are typically very large companies, state-owned, um, and uh, not always representative of the, the the best opportunities in the region. Moving away from a benchmark constrained uh, process meant that we were in a better position to take opportunities in the um, technology sector, for instance, which has you know it's a very promising area. Um, uh, there's a lot of um, uh, Russians and Eastern Europeans more generally who are doing fantastic things in the technology space, and uh, uh, you know that is a sector which is not represented at all in the benchmark. The same is true of healthcare, for instance, which is also a very interesting space for us. Um, uh, and so, so really, we wanted to move away from the inherent biases in the benchmark and really concentrate on what we thought would be the best opportunities over the life of the trust.
4: Mm, and I'm talking about the benchmark and about this kind of concentration of stocks. We should mention performance. I mean, this clearly isn't a fund which gives you kind of a smooth ride, <laughs> obviously. So returns have been pretty up and down, as has your performance against the benchmark. I mean, how pleased have you been with, with returns over the past um, few years?
3: Well, uh, you know, the, the, the region in absolute terms has, has a, had a, a difficult few years. I think what we are pleased about uh, is our relative performance. Um, we released our, our monthly update uh, uh, yesterday and, and over the past three years, we've outperformed the benchmark by roughly 12%. And, and we've done that precisely by uh, uh, not following the crowd, by, by having the conviction to go with uh, the opportunities which, which we thought were most interesting.
4: Um, and we've talked about Russia, but we should obviously talk about Greece. You now have a relatively large holding in um, National Bank of Greece, which is which is new holding for you, isn't it? Since last year, um, can you talk to us about why why you hold that, and also what what you think about the potential of a Greek exit? Sure. You
3: know? Well, um, it's it's a huge topic. Uh, we could <laughs> probably do a half hour show on that alone, but. Um, <laughs> perhaps a little bit of history may be useful context. Greece used to be an emerging market stock uh, a, a country rather many years ago. It re-entered our benchmark in 2012 quite controversially and uh, we actually held zero Greece in the trust uh, from that period until last year. At the time we thought that um, earnings expectations were, were unrealistic and the valuations were too high uh, and it was a very fashionable market. People were pitching the Greek recovery story. Uh, obviously uh, in stock market terms that, that didn't transport and uh, as the market started to uh, fall prior to the uh, elections um, at the beginning of this year that was the first time that we'd started to accumulate um, uh, Greek positions once valuations had gotten down to levels we felt reflected uh, the risks involved and as we've gone through the turbulence so far this year we've actually slowly moved into a, a slightly overweight position. It's you know, I want to be very clear, it's not a huge proportion of our trust. Risk management is a very important part of what we do at BlackRock um, and we make sure that all the exposures we take are, are first of all very deliberate but also appropriately diversified and appropriately scaled but we are optimistic on Greece uh, and, and the, the logic behind that is really twofold. The first thing is that uh, if you look at polling in Greece, there is very consistent popular support for staying in the euro. It polls at about 70 to 75% uh, and even even if you ask people whether they would accept a deal to stay in the euro with tough conditions, that still has majority support of about 55%. And so, so uh, striking an agreement at some stage would be a popular thing to do domestically. The, the second thing is that the gap between Greece and the creditors has actually narrowed quite a lot. We know that it's roughly about half a percent of GDP in terms of public spending two years out. That is not a huge sum in the scale of things. A Grexit-type scenario would uh, certainly uh, cost the public spending in Greece a lot, lot more than half a a percentage point of GDP. And similarly, for for Europe, uh, it's not a particularly large price to pay. So both popularity and economic logic, and, and even social welfare for that matter, would point towards an agreement. However, you do obviously have to uh, understand that there are risks involved here. There's a lot of politics um, and, uh, and so, so you can never say it's, it's a sure thing. But we have been here once before uh, in Greece uh, when the um, uh, previous bailout package was being uh, negotiated and we just have to hope that they um, uh, eventually take a similar course this time around.
4: Okay, um,
0: well, I think that's probably all
4: we've got time for on that. So
0: thank you very
3: much.
4: Thank you.
0: Today is the anniversary of the alternative investment market, commonly referred to as AIM. This market has performed badly over the years, but some of the funds which invest in it have done really well. So, Adrian, should investors consider funds which invest in AIM?
1: Yeah, I think AIM is a market that you shouldn't look at the index. It's um, a stock picker's market. So, if you're looking at AIM, you've really got to look at individual shares, and it's all about stock selection. But, having said that, uh, there are some exceptional companies in there, and it's really about trying to find those companies that can double, treble, or even rise ten times, tenfold to uh, to make returns. But it is very, very risky.
0: What sort of risks? Would investors face in a you know a fund with um, let's say substantial AIM exposure?
1: Well, the, I mean the key thing is uh, companies that list on AIM don't go through quite the same regulatory controls that they do to go onto the main London Stock Exchange. So you you, you do have sort of governance risks and corporate uh, uh, issues that may crop up. It's in a market that also attracts startups for this reason, because they don't have the costs of having to sort of fulfil the requirements of a main listing. There it attracts companies that are perhaps at a start ups phase or fledging stage. And and these companies by their nature, you know, for every one that is a success, there's probably another ten or so that don't you never hear about and that's the nature of startup businesses they uh, the one you know uh, most of them don't make it and and even those that do survive don't necessarily grow so that's that's another key risk one of the ways to address these types of risks is to to ensure you're well diversified across aim because you know all the fund managers i meet and talk to they don't get it right 100% of the time so they diversify their portfolios to make sure that no one individual company takes huge amounts of portfolio and they've to fight another day
0: Yes, if an investor can take these risks, what sort of role could an AIM fund play in your portfolio?
1: Well, it, it usually will sort of feature in in, in, in a, a smaller part of a smaller company's fund or part of your smaller company's exposure in the UK. Uh, it does have about uh, a portion of the AIM market is actually invested in um, in international companies, so it's not just a UK exposure. Uh, but you're looking at basically... UK smaller companies, growth factor, it could really add that sort of little bit of um, sort of growth uh, that can feature in in, in a portfolio. So it's uh, the high-risk growth side of your portfolio, uh, long-term investing, you know, usually people say at least five years. I always think you should be investing at least 10 years. And I think with AIM, you've got to look through that and beyond.
0: Turning to... Passive funds. Recent research shows that um, some tracker funds have lagged their benchmark index by more than 4%. Kate, specifically, what does the report say and why have these trackers been underperforming their indices?
4: We have been looking into the performance of some tracker funds and it's in relation to a report that Chelsea Financial Services has produced, which is its most recent list of worst performing funds. So they name the, the kind of worst performing funds over the last three discrete years taken from a list of funds which produce third or fourth quartile returns every year so this year there were 20 tracker funds in the list um, from the UK or companies sector and five of those has underperformed their benchmarks by more than four percent in three years one actually underperformed by nine percent so I thought I'd have a look at which these were and why that might be obviously the thing about trackers is you do want them to track efficiently so this does look like quite poor performance Usually, if a tracker's underperforming, it's either because it's very expensive, because the fees are distracting from the returns, or because it has a high tracking area due to the kind of poor use of derivatives or something similar. Now, it turns out in most of the cases of these funds which were underperforming, so, and a few, Legal in General, and the family charities, Ethical, which was the worst performer, lagging by 9%, most of these were legacy funds with with a very expensive share class and so I think that was, that was kind of the lesson here that in fact most of these funds um, had newer more updated share classes which were cheaper and which tracked better. I had a chat with Legal in General about it who said that one of the funds in this list was actually under review and the others were legacy structures which, which you wouldn't necessarily buy as an investor going in for the first time.
0: Jason um have you been using tracker funds for your clients and will you change this in light of these findings
2: yeah I mean we've we, we were very early adopters of tracker funds so we um, we started using tracker funds with our clients when we founded the business around ten years ago um, and we think they're fantastic we' we'll carry on using them we don't use any of the the tracker funds that have, have been on this uh, this list that uh, you were just talking about the thing with tracker funds is you expect them to track their index and one of the key ways they can do that is to be very low cost. So you know, cost is one of the key differentiating factors between tracker funds and active funds. And if you've got an expensive tracker fund, you know, you're in a bad fund probably. So you know, when we look at the combination of costs of the portfolios that our clients have, they're looking at about 0.3% per annum. So very low cost uh, whereas there are tracker funds out there that charge 1% per annum, and it's probably funds that charge more and it's just a bad thing. <laughs> you just don't want to be paying that much to, to track an index.
4: Yeah, I mean, we we say that some of these funds were charging kind of 1.5% ongoing charge, which which is, you know, kind of an active management fee, isn't it? And I think that was the problem here.
0: Adrian, do you uh, think tracker funds have a place in people's portfolios?
1: I I think I'm very much of the view that basically there's a place for everything in a portfolio and everything has its place. Um, I think with tracker funds, they're really suited for uh, markets where it's hard to get an active manager that can add value. So the US has been uh, tipped as that in recent years. And also they can be very effective, um, particularly after markets had a big sell-off. So following the financial crisis, um, a lot of active managers missed out on what was Deemed the dash for trash rally because active managers don't want to be buying trash, but a tracker fund will hold everything, and therefore it 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 rallies with with the market. Uh, however, at the current point, I think with markets looking on the on the top end of of fair value and possibly expensive in parts, you increasingly end up buying the expensive areas with a tracker fund, along with the smaller cheap areas. But as the areas that are cheap become fewer you end up having more of your money in the expensive areas. So actually, I think active manager becomes a more interesting area at this point in time.
0: Okay. Another trend in the passive world has been uh, the rise in popularity of exchange-traded funds, known as ETFs, which are hedged to sterling, partly because of the increased volatility in the currency markets. Kate, have these currency-hedged ETFs actually improved investors' returns?
4: The short answer is, yes, they have um, in some cases. I had a look at whether they've improved returns, but also what impact they've had in terms of volatility. So QE, as you said, has, has been the real argument for currency hedging because it's had such an impact on, on devaluing currencies, particularly in Japan and Europe. So it's been a, a really good thing to take out that risk of converting your weak currency back to, to sterling, which is stronger, and then taking a big hit on returns. So when you look at the European and Japanese indices, it's very clear that the hedged version over the past year have outperformed. And we see that as well with with the ETFs. There's a very popular European one, which comes up a lot, the UBS, the MSCI, EMU, 100% hedged to GBP. And that outperformed over a year by 10% the the same ETF, which is unhedged. And the, the same is true of Japan. Every every ETF I looked at, the hedged version had outperformed. So certainly in the past year, you would definitely have been better off with with a hedged ETF. Volatility is, is a less clear argument, actually, because these hedged indices and hedged ETFs aren't less volatile when it comes to equities. But actually, when you look at fixed income, they are much less volatile. So in fact, the answer seems to be, in terms of performance, Yes, hedging has has improved performance, certainly in Japan and in Europe, but you haven't had a smoother ride when it comes to equities.
0: Jason, do you use currency hedged ETFs of your clients?
2: We don't specifically use ETFs, but we do use a currency hedged bond fund with our, with our clients. So I think the thing to remember with currency is it's a zero-sum game. So some, some currencies will go up, others will go down, but... You're not going to necessarily make money out of currency unless you're speculating and and get lucky. So, for most of our clients, sterling is the main, the most important currency. And for their equity funds, we've taken the view that we're not going to use hedged funds because you know sometimes you'll win, sometimes you'll lose because of this zero sum game argument. But with the bond part of our our clients' exposure, they want a low volatility fund. That's the, that's the role of the bond fund within our portfolios at least, and therefore we feel it has to be hedged back to sterling.
0: Adrian, do you think investors should opt for funds which hedge against currency movements?
2: I I think uh, Jason's absolutely right. It's a zero-sum
1: game and and effectively very difficult to predict. Um, So... If you're going to hedge against currency, it's really about uh, minimizing risks uh, and reducing volatility in a portfolio, particularly in the equity market. If you if you speak to fund managers in that space, majority of them don't get involved in currency, so they take a, a polar view: either they don't hedge it, or they do, or actually, more increasingly, they just offer investors with the choice that they make. So, on the whole, I don't look to sort of uh, get, sort of get involved in the currency debate of your own and, and tend not to not to actually hedge. It's very very difficult to make money in, in hedging, and you can you. Can protect a portfolio in the short term but you could easily lose that protection in the longer term if, if you get your call wrong.
4: And uh, yeah and I think it, it has been over the past year it was a clearer call wasn't it with, with QE devaluing the yen and the euro but in, in recent months that, that has become less clear and after that has played out it, it definitely won't be such a clear argument and uh, since the beginning of the year even the yen has been kind of moving sideways a bit. So,
1: I mean, the, the, the yen and the Japan has always been the obvious argument about currency hedging, but it, it, it isn't an absolute that uh, the yen falls and the stock market rises. It's only been true, OK, for the last 30 years. But before that, there wasn't as much correlation. And we could see that reverse at some point in the future. The the The, the correlation between the yen and the stock market rising may not exist in the future. So it's not an absolute.
0: Okay, some things to think about there before you opt for hedging. Thank you very much to our special guests, Adrian Lowcock, Head of Investing at Axis Self-Investor, Jason Whitcomb, Certified Financial Planner and Director at Evolve, and David Reed, Co-Manager of BlackRock Emerging Europe. Thanks also to personal finance writer Kate Bearley. You can read more about moving your pension into safer assets, AIM and Tracker Fund performance in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend.